Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We are in a series called, um, what's the spirit, the disciplines of the spirit. <laughs> spirit of the discipline. No, the disciplines of the spirit. And we are looking at uh, ways, patterns, training. We are learning how to train ourselves to become more like Jesus through habits and disciplines. Recognizing that there's nothing necessarily powerful about the discipline, but that as we grow in Christ, through the grace of Jesus, through the power of his spirit, through discipline, we can become transformed into Christ-likeness. So this is what we introduced last week. If you miss it, Bill did an exceptional job of teaching through it. Go and listen to it on, online on our podcast. Paul uses this language to put off the old self and put on a new self. And that is a discipline. That is a practice, that is a pattern or a chosen behavior. Like physical exercise is not natural. It's not natural. I just went to the gym on Monday last week. Um, <laughs> I went this morning, actually. I did, but I didn't do much. But uh, I went to the gym with a friend. And it's, isn't it interesting that you can work out way harder, longer, and lift more weight when you're with somebody else? Does anyone else notice that? Like if I go by myself, it's like, Okay, like this is basically <laughs> with the with TV screen. But my friend, I'm doing like box jumps and burpees and I nearly lost what little breakfast I ate that morning. But, but that discipline isn't for the sake of really good, being good at box jumps and burpees. The, the working out is to create a healthy soul, a healthy physical body that will last so that I can, have, I can be a great grandpa. That's my vision anyways. I don't know what yours is, but that's, that's what spiritual disciplines are. They're a way of shaping who our physical, emotional, social, mental, and spiritual realities through, through things that are unnatural so that we become natural at doing the things Jesus would do if he were, if he were us. Cool? So I want to introduce, I want to do two things this morning. One, I want to show you how the small things are the big things. So that's the first thing I'm going to do. And the second thing is I want to introduce a discipline of fasting. But I want to introduce fasting as a counterformational practice that brings spiritual revival, personal renewal, and cultural redemption if you practice it. You with me? All right, so Daniel chapter one. We're gonna look at this as a backdrop to kind of shape uh, a paradigm I wanna give you about counterformational practices. So in the book of Daniel, if you go to the Old Testament, if you open it up to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs, go right, it's after Ezekiel. And we're gonna read uh, this narrative about uh, this, this season that the Israelites faced when they were in exile. And I'm just going to read part of chapter one. And I want to get you into this narrative. And then I'll explain the narrative and make a couple of points. And then we'll jump into what fasting is all about. And maybe with the help of Daniel, you'll see fasting through a different perspective. So chapter one of Daniel, verse one, the words will be on the screen behind me. Read along with me or uh, open up a Bible. There's some Bibles up here. In the third year of the reign of Jeho Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, anyone else struggle with that one? Okay, good. <laughs> king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, another good name, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any defect, physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were from uh, the house of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. Uh, to Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid, my Lord, um, my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink, why should he see you looking worse than any other young men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. Then Daniel said to the guard, um, Test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. This is Daniel chapter one. So we haven't been in Daniel, but we, I want to just kind of break down this passage and give you a paradigm for what we're going to enter into. Okay, so Daniel is an interesting book. It begins with the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, coming into Jerusalem and he besieged Jerusalem. So you have empire against empire, king against king, and you have the God Yahweh, Israel's God versus the Babylonian gods. And it begins with this word besieged. And I want you to have this image of what it means to be besieged. So I want you to imagine an army coming in and surrounding an entire city. And that army occupies the outside of a city so that food cannot go in or out. Water, wine, harvest cannot come in or out. And so what the army does is they sit outside and they wait and they wait, and they wait, and they wait until the uh, occupying city l lets down its fo forces and surrenders to the army. And that's what happens in Jerusalem. But let's just take it a step further, okay? I want you to picture a table, a dinner table. This isn't a dinner table. But let's just imagine that this is a dinner table, and there's four, there's a family of four here, and they're sitting at a table. And what would happen is... A week would go by and there's no food and there's no water coming in. So you would start rationing the food with two kids and two adults. And soon, soon the food that you once had that was plenty is now scarce and you begin to starve. And what would happen when cities were besieged is they would basically get starved to death 
or um, they would run out of water and they would be they would die of dehydration. So forces would, the, the the powers would just open up the gates and and surrender because their people would starve and die. Do you think if you were a teenager experiencing a city being besieged where your parents are rationing your food, you would forget that experience? Okay, so that's. That's how it begins, okay? So go into the human side of the text. But then something worse happens. Nebuchadnezzar um, takes over Judah and Jerusalem. He takes the artifacts of the temple of Yahweh and he takes them back to his temple in Babylonia and dedicates the treasures of Yahweh to Babylonian gods. And in that time, what you have is the Israelite worldview that our God is God. And so in other words, the Babylonian gods, one, Yahweh, zero. Not only is your nation crushed, your temples destroyed, you've been starved, but now the Babylonian gods are winning. This is how we have, this is how we have to see the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel is the story of how one might survive and be a redemptive presence while in exile in another nation and culture. Are you with me? So let's just keep going through this because what, what, what Nebuchadnezzar does is brilliant. He wants to not just conquer a nation or, or a city. He wants to indoctrinate their people with the culture of the Babylonian way. And so what he does is he, he takes basically um, their Harvard, Yale, Stanford, um, and their Ivy League students, the best of the best, the smartest, the brightest, the physically um, uh, strong, and, and he takes them so th- that he can, so he can indoctrinate them in their culture in Babylonian ways. So he's going to teach them the Babylonian literature, Babylonian myths, Babylonian lifestyle, Babylonian gods. And so the way you would change a culture is by taking the future leaders and teaching them something else. And so this is what he does. And that's where Daniel comes in. Daniel would probably be a teenager. And what, what we have to know about Daniel is that he had to take a 500 mile journey to get to Bab- the, the headquarters of Babylon from, from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was a 500 mile journey in the ancient Near East time. That would take months to get there. When he gets there, he doesn't know if his parents were murdered or if they're alive, or if they're in prison or if they're enslaved. He has uh, re- re- memories of being starved because he was besieged. He gets there um, and he's given a new name. Okay. Daniel goes from God, God is my my judge to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Bel was the primary Babylonian God. So his name is changed. The other guys, they also have names like Lord is gracious, who is like God. The Lord is my help. And then they're given new names like illuminated by the sun God. Um, they're named after a Babylonian queen of heaven. And one is called the slave of Nabu. And Nabu is a Babylonian god of wisdom. So not only are they, they're now prisoners into the king's household, their, their names are changed. They're given new clothing. They're going to be taught new literature. They're going to be taught a new culture, lifestyle. Their lives are completely far away from home. They're lost in a different empire, in a different culture. And there you have Daniel, who's losing with no power against this massive empire that wiped out the temple of God, sitting at the, Lord, at the king's table with all sorts of food. Here he is again, sitting at a table with the choice meat and wine. 
but wine and meat that's dedicated to Babylonian gods. He has no power. He's a teenage boy in this empire. How on earth will he remain faithful and challenge a different culture? How will he challenge an empire? How will he challenge an, a, a culture that is unsupportive of the very position that he has? A nation, an empire, gods, war, commands, kings. And this boy sits there and they say to him, eat, eat the food, plenty for you to go around. And what does he do? How does he challenge the culture? I'm not going to eat this. You see, the small things are really big things. Small things have power. Small things are the big things. How does Daniel redeem a culture that fundamentally opposes his way of life? Through one small decision, what I put in my mouth won't defile me. And, it, and you, you will see throughout Daniel's life, tiny decisions like food and prayer and worship that transform his position in an empire where he becomes a person of wisdom that shapes the culture of Babylon rather than accommodates to the culture of Babylon. Are you with me? So this is a story of a global military superpower whose empire was about conquest. It's the story of a destructive culture opposing all the values and vision that Daniel has. And Daniel chooses to resist that culture by choosing to not defile himself with the food he eats. He will read their literature. He will study their gods. He will study their myths. But he chooses to not defile himself with one table and one meal at a time. Some of you have vision to change the world. Some of you have vision to change your own life. Some of you have vision for your careers. Can I just insert or suggest that the small things really matter in your life? Your tiny, simple, and mundane habits have real power. Point number one, your tiny, simple, and mundane habits have power. The Babylonians were the dominant empire of Daniel's time. They had their own way of doing life. They had their own culture. That culture had a particular set of values and vision and way of life that opposed Daniel's way of life and values. We today live in a time where culture, the culture that we live in, in many ways opposes the value and lifestyle of the kingdom of God. Would you agree? Our culture, in other words, bends us towards self-focus, consumerism, uh, hypersexuality, media consumption, overindulgence, and addiction to entertainment. Just to name a few. (laughs) Every advertisement we see in many ways is a form of propaganda to our culture. It's a narrative we are being sold. The narrative tells us that we are inadequate and insufficient. And the solution to all of our problems is more. More products, more stuff, more house, more cars, more relationships, better relationships, upgrade, whatever it is. That's where we have a society and culture built around consumerism. We just have to recognize that. And that's the default setting that we all live in. 
I'm just gonna speak to this for a moment. It's really imperative. This is probably the hardest thing to hear, but this is our default setting. Our default setting is to to define ourselves by what we consume, what we own, by what we touch, materialism. This is what I'll call the river that we're all swimming in. Okay, it's a current that's moving us fast and we're all in flotation devices and we're just floating down that river like a lazy river at at wild rivers or wild rapids. You know what I'm talking about? You just sit there and there's like this random current. You don't know how it's moving, but it's going and everyone else is going that direction. And so that's, that's what it's like. That's the default sh- setting. And that's what we're being shaped by. Our culture has the power to shape our decisions without us having to think about it. We live in a culture that shapes our mood and our habits and our lifestyle. Whether you know this or not, I want to just demonstrate the power that our culture has. Media has the power to shape and alter our moods. Like, for example, uh, Danielle, uh, would you play my playlist for what ha- the, the playlist I, I use when I go to the gym to work out? Put that song on for me. Hello. Okay, what? Keep, keep going. This is obviously not what I work out to. Wait, hold on, hold on. Oh. Oh, yeah, okay. So when I hear this, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to run six miles, right? <laughs> right? Or eight mile. Uh, oh, come on. You just like, uh, all right, you can cut it because I'll go off on the wrap, you know? <laughs> Palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. Okay, anyways, there's vomit on a sweater already. Okay, um, my point is this. Adele creates an emotional mood, does it not? Does she not? What do you feel? Just shout emotions. What do you feel emotionally? Depressed, sad. (laughs) That's not something that you put on if you want to feel good about life. What does Eminem's song, Lose Yourself, make you feel? Pumped. What else? Angry, intense. So that's just one small, tiny example of how ordinary Unintentional habits like the music we listen to shape our moods. Now, I, I, I watch um, Daredevil on Netflix. I watched the two seasons in like a week, and, um, which is a problem in itself. But I remember sitting in staff meeting thinking about taking kung fu re- lessons, right? <laughs> or in seriousness, uh, after the tragedy of what happened in San Bernardino, I remember dry, being in public thinking, something bad's going to happen. I was afraid of a terrorist attack. Culture, whether it's media, the music we listen to, the books we read, the clothes that we buy, all we are being shaped by the culture around us. So the question then is, how do we as Christians, how do we relate to culture, right? So here are some ways, I'll put this up, that, that we've related as Christians in the past. We em- embrace it, which is basically to say there's no difference between the culture that we live in and us. We just adopt everything as a lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with the, the movies you watch, the, the clothes that you wear. There's nothing wrong inherently with the, the, the food and drink or we avoid it. And this is where the monastic movement came in where we just separate ourselves completely from culture and we, uh, and we just avoid 
watching any TV, listening to any music that's not labeled Christian or whatever it is. We avoid culture altogether. Uh, or we take it over. And this is what Constantine tried to do. Um, and around 325 AD, Constantine became Roman emperor, made uh, Christianity the formal religion of the Roman Empire. It's our way of voting people into power. If we vote the right person in, then everything's going to be okay. That's not true. Okay, that's not how the kingdom works. Kingdom doesn't use power that way. Um, uh, this also, it's like triumphalism. It's, it is the Christian industry. Like, I, I don't believe in Christian music as, as a genre. Christians should make all sorts of music, right? We should make the best art, the best movies, the best music, and it doesn't have to have an igthus or a cross stamped on it, right? Like, let me just say Chance the Rapper, Okay. <laughs> Clearly, it's like one of the best worship albums out there right now, his new mixtape. It's amazing. Anyways, go check that out later. I'm an advocate now for chance. Okay, but the fourth way, and this is what Daniel teaches us, is to redeem culture, to enter into culture, to be a part of culture, and to, uh, and to live an alternative way right in the middle of it. It's not, it's not trying to take it over. It's trying to come under and redeem it. It's like planting seeds that grow and all of a sudden there's a giant tree, a giant garden in the middle of a city. Are you with me? So it's, it's a way of redemption. So Daniel gives us insight into uh, not only how we might redeem culture, but how we might transform our lives at the same time. And this is where food comes in for Daniel. The answer to how do we do both at the same time is our habits. Habits have power. We are all being shaped, not just by culture, but our unintentional habits that we all live our lives with. If I were to ask you these questions, I want you to just think for a moment. If you were to look at your life and do an audit on your life, what would you find? Let's just, let's pretend that like we go to, you know, we get a, 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 an audit from IRS. They're going to go through all of our finances, see where we spend our money. Let's just do a life audit for a moment, okay? And, and if you're new to this, this might actually be helpful. If you're new to the Christian faith, if you're not a believer, a life audit might be what you need to see the type of transformation you really need. Where do you spend your time? Just think to yourself, maybe jot down some notes. The majority of my time is working, sleeping, eating, Internet, social media. I spend a lot of time on my computer watching Netflix, Hulu, you know, HBO. I spend a lot of time shopping or I spend a lot of time with relationships. Write it down. Where do you spend your money? Right? Where do you spend your money? You spend it with, uh, on rent and retirement, mortgage, kids, car insurance, insurance, car payments, the gym, food, uh, clothes. Where do you, vacations. What consumes your thoughts throughout the day? When you're given space, where does your mind wander? Do, do, you think of your, do you have a lot of fear, anxiety? Do you think about the future? Do you think about your past? Do you think about relationships? Think about what you don't have? What kind of food do you eat? Just life audit. Just go, what kind of food? Good, healthy, vegetarian, holy moly, chipotle, all the good, you know, the four food groups, chipotle, 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 chipotle. Um, <laughs> What kind of, uh, what, what do you do for fun? Do you have hobbies? Do you spend time with hobbies? Do you, what are the values you have for your life? What are, what's the vision? Um, and then ask yourself, what are the good things that keep you from being who you really want to be? You know what I'm talking about? Every new year, you set some goals. At least I do. Some of us do. And, and then you just go back into those old habits. Do you not? 
good things that are good. They're just normal part of life, but you don't have time for the gym. You don't have time for that particular goal of writing or whatever it is. What are the small habits in your life that distract you from being an intentional follower of Jesus? This is the life audit, okay? And we can, we're gonna email this out to our community groups this week. Those are some questions that might help you. How do your everyday habits shape who you're becoming? So I wanna give you an example. I want to be a great father, not a good father. I wanna be a great dad. I want my son, thank you, Jeremiah. I love you, man. But you know, there, there's something about this. So that's the vision I have for my life. But there's a habit in my life that keeps me from being a great father. There's like a simple habit and it's this thing right here. And this neutral device lets me check my emails, lets me check work, lets me uh, go online and Google anything I want to know, lets me listen to music, take videos, take pictures. It lets me uh, post pictures on the social interweb stuff. It lets me do whatever I want to do. And this device, as harmless as it is, and the habits that I formed around it, has kept me from being a great father. Because it distracts me when I'm present. I pull my phone out in front of them. I, can, I, I feel in my pocket when my phone didn't buzz, a, 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 a ghost buzz. It's the phantom buzz. I'm, right? And it seems harmless, but it prevents me. That habit prevents me from fulfilling the vision I have. Anyone else struggle with this? That's just one area of my life and one neutral thing called the cell phone. Now, let me introduce to you fasting. In some way, spiritual disciplines, listen to this. This is something I wanted to insert for the next three weeks as I talk about spiritual disciplines. In some way, spiritual disciplines are counter-formational practices. They're counter-formational practices that transform our body, mind, emotions, social interactions, and spirit to be and act more like Jesus. That's what a spiritual discipline is. It's a counteract to a cultural habit in our life, right? It counters it. In some ways, micro or small habits in our lives have a disproportionate macro impact in our lives. Micro habits have a disproportionate macro impact. Let me explain. I have a vision of being a great husband, a great father and a great husband. And this would be a, this rule I can apply here as well. The habit, the, the natural cultural habit that I have in my life is checking my phone and having my phone on me all the time and refreshing my emails and going online and checking out first Instagram, then it's Twitter, then it's Facebook. Okay, anyone else have a progression? They wake up, check your emails, check. Is that what you do? Am I right? That's a habit leading me towards what? Something else. It's shaping how I'm interacting. Here's the counterformative spiritual discipline. I've been working on this this week and it's really hard. I go and I put my phone away when I come home and I don't have it on me. I put it in a drawer. That micro habit has had macro impact in my life. That tiny, tiny habit, that tiny decision and discipline, which is unnatural because I'm used to having it on me all the time, putting that away empowers this crazy idea like being a present father to my son, which has a greater impact of being a greater, great husband and father. Isn't that interesting? What are the other areas in your life that you can think of that you're just naturally doing things, you're taking on natural habits 
that need to be challenged by this discipline of fasting. So I've been fasting media, fasting, having my phone on me, literally abstaining from you. So the word I want to talk about is this spiritual discipline called fasting. Fasting is a counterformational practice that brings spiritual revival, personal renewal, and cultural redemption. Fasting empowers greater intimacy with God. That's what scripture teaches. That through, uh, scripture teaches that fasting is a form of worship. The spiritual discipline of fasting is simply this. It's abstaining from all food for a set period of time. And throughout the scripture, what you see is people set aside daily food to seek God with intensity and intentionality. Is food good? Yes. No pause there. Food is really good. How many of you eat? We all struggle with eating. Okay, good. Fasting is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with food, right? Now, throughout scripture and throughout history, people have chosen to fast for the purpose of seeking God, not for dietary reasons, not for uh, looking a certain way, but fasting was a primary way of, of taking the daily substance of food, something that you need every day, and using the time, the energy, the money spent at, at eating and preparing meals to seek out God with intensity and intentionality. There are 40-day fasts, 21-day fasts, 7-day fasts, uh, weekly fasts. There's a day fast all throughout the Old and New Testament. But the purpose of fasting was to fix your eyes and heart on God. And fasting would empower greater relationship with God. That's what I call spiritual revival. When you set aside the things that you need and want, for seeking God and his purposes, not for an outcome. I'm not even talking about fasting for an outcome. This is a discipline. Fasting for the sake of seeking God in your life. Surrendering that time, that energy for God to be with him and to allow the discomfort and pain of not eating a meal to, to be the fire and fuel for seeking God in your life. Is that interesting? So fasting is, provides spiritual revival. It's, uh, it's also non-cognitive uh, non spiritual formation. In other words, it shapes your body. You're training your body to learn to do what Jesus would do without having to think about it. That's what fasting does. One of the, way, one of the outcomes of fasting. Let's just go to Matthew 6 real quick. There's a teaching I want you to see. Um, we'll just close with some practical stuff in just a second. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. This is Jesus' teaching. It's right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. He had just talked about giving, just talked about prayer. And now we, he just begins to talk about fasting. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 6, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it, it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who's unseen. And your father who, is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here's Jesus' teaching, and, and he's correcting the misuse of fasting, fasting use as a way of showing public piety during his time. He's challenging the motivation of fasting in this context. But what's interesting about this is that there's an unconscious assumption about fasting and followers of Jesus. Jesus assumes if you follow him, not only will you practice giving financially, not only will you practice prayer, but you will practice fasting. When you fast, 
It's as if he just assumes that as Christians, of course, you give up eating for a while to seek God. Does anyone else think that that's like the most difficult thing you can possibly do for God? Like, this, I mean, seriously, I, I did it this week as a way of preparing for this sermon. I told you, so I just lost my reward. Um, <laughs> there was no reward, I'm telling you right now. Nothing but broken relationships. I was mean. I was hangry. I was quick-tempered. I was short. I was looking for a way out. I wanted, to, I wanted to feast on everything I saw because it's so uncomfortable and it has a physical implication. But, but what Jesus says here is not about the outward piety. It's not even about doing something that, so that God will reward you or God will give you the outcome that you want or that you'll convince God because you fasted and prayed that like a vending machine, he'll answer your prayers. That's not what fasting's about. Fasting is simply centering your life around God and eliminating distractions, even the good distractions, and recognizing that God is everything. And he provides all. And it brings you to a place of spiritual revival, but it has physical implications. And what I experienced was this. This week, I became aware of what captures my attention. I, be, I became aware that I'm very much motivated by my hunger. By my stomach. My stomach drives a lot of decisions in my life. My stomach drives my mood. My stomach drives my energy, my, my, my decision-making process. You, so physically, you become aware of what's underneath the surface levels of your physical needs. And all of a sudden, I realized through the discipline of fasting what controls and motivates me. And it's not just Jesus and good things. It's food and anger and bitterness and jealousy and fear and pride. And what I do is I cover all of those feelings and those emotions and those things in my life up with food, with entertainment, with shopping, with social media and internet, with beverages, whether it's LaCroix, a beer, or coffee. There are emotions and feelings that I have that motivate me that I just cover up and pacify with those things. Are you with me? Anyone else see that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I have the right to do anything, and you do. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. He says it again. But I will not be mastered by anything. So that's the point, is that we live in a culture where there are things opposing the lifestyle of the kingdom. So one of the ways we can counteract our, our default setting, our flowing down the river is to choose to intentionally fast. Are you with me? So I want to invite you to fast. I want to invite you to be uncomfortable, to choose discomfort as a way of worship through the discipline of fasting. So here, here are some helpful tips you might want to write down for how to begin to fast. And I don't have it on the screen, but let me just give you a couple of things. First of all, if you want to start this spiritual discipline of fasting, here's what I'm going to say. A disclaimer, not everyone should fast. Some of you, for medical reasons, should definitely not fast. Some of you, throughout your life, you've had a, a particular relationship with food that has been harmful. You're probably not supposed to fast. Talk to a medical person. I'm just giving a disclaimer. If you're pregnant, you clearly don't fast, okay? Um, for lots of reasons. So that's a disclaimer. And if you're gonna begin fasting, fasting is like training for a marathon. You don't start by running 26 miles or whatever it is. What is it, 26 point something? Point two. Sorry, I was off at point two. Um, and it's the point two that gets you, right? Am I right? 
so, uh, you don't, you start with one mile and then you go to two and then you take a, a day off and then you go two miles and you go three and then you take a week off. Or, I don't know, but there's a pro method. I've never trained for a marathon. <laughs> But it's a good illustration, right? <laughs> oh, so if you want to start with st- food, we're going to start. Here's what I'm going to say. Start with one step at a time. Start small. Remember, small things matter. Small things are the big things. Smart, start with food. Start with one meal. I would like t- for everyone that calls the garden home to choose this week to fast one meal if you're allowed to fast as a spiritual discipline, not for any other reason other than you seeking God. So decide today when that meal will be, let's say Wednesday breakfast, and set that time aside for seeking God. And you can do that through worship, through prayer, um, through reading the scriptures, but make that a discipline. You're gonna, you're, you don't do it when it, you just missed a meal. Oh, I fasted, I missed a meal, I was so busy. That's not fasting. <laughs> And you don't do it to look better. That's not the point. So one meal. Second, I want, then the next week, I want you to choose that same time and do two meals. Maybe it's breakfast and lunch. And then the next week, I want you to choose to do 24 hours. Would you guys do that? And so move to other things in your life. And here's what I, where I really wanted this message to go. And I'm going to close with this. What are the things in your life that distract you from being the person you are designed to be? Remember how we talked about who we are in Christ? We don't have to shout them out, Jeremiah. I appreciate the love. It's okay. We'll talk later. You can keep this to yourself because if everyone did that, it would, quite, it would be an ordeal. But I appreciate video games. So we're going to use video games as an illustration. Um, what are the things that distract you from being the person you were designed to be? Or another way to say it, that distract you from being a passionate follower of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about sin. We, we know sin is an issue. But what are the good things that have become distractions. The nebulous things in your life. And I've used illustrations in my life. And I just want to tell you, for Jeremiah, he just said, video games. Video games, there's nothing wrong with video games in themselves. But if it keeps Jeremiah from being the man of God God has called him to be, he might this week to give up video games for a period of time. As a, as a form of worshiping. It's not give it up because I want to just, I just want to beat myself, you know, and sacrifice my life for God. It's to just get rid of the distractions, to see all the ways we're swimming in this river and to stand firm on dry ground and realize that I've been shaped by Netflix. I've been shaped by alcohol. I've been shaped by dating relationships The way I date people is equal to the way I shop on Amazon Prime or whatever it is. It's a consumption. It's a a way of defining my life, distracting my life from the things that matter most. I focus, uh, when I see a problem, I spend hours and hours researching on Google for the solution. Anyone else struggle? Or I go online to get some work done and I go to Facebook and the next thing I know, I'm watching an hour of kitten videos and epic fails, (laughs) right? (laughs) I open my version app, but I go to Twitter to post one verse that I read that's about meditating on the word, only to post it to everyone else and not meditate on the word. Anyone else know what I'm talking about here? This is just me, except for the kitty videos. I do love America's Funniest Home Videos. I swear that's like my favorite thing Alex and I will do. She loves, is that not? I just, I love AFV. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's giving up certain types of food. Maybe it's literally not buying anything for a week. 
So I don't know what your life audit would, will reveal, but these are all things that have come up in my life. Clothes. I've, I've been eliminating my wardrobe dramatically ever since I got back from India because I'm realizing how easy it is to define myself by what I wear and by the pursuit of something that I, I really don't need, but I want. And because when I get it, I have this, this chemical response in my brain that makes me feel really good. Like I'm, I'm enough and I'm satisfied. And then three months go by and I want something else. And that's no longer the thing that satisfies. So fasting is a way of counter formation. It counters those things to give you new habits. Are you with me? And when you do this, when you choose to fast and give it up, you experience spiritual revival, physical renewal, and physical being emotional, social, and mental, not just the physical body. It's all four of those dimensions that make up our physical existence. And it brings cultural redemption. When we're able to stand in a culture at a party where there's nothing but drinking and and debauchery, let's just use that word, which we've all been a part of those, and stand there as a redemptive presence in culture, not avoiding it, but as a redemptive presence there. We're not being tainted by the culture, but we're shaping that culture. Then guess what? God's kingdom comes through your life, through small decisions you've chosen, like Daniel, to not defile yourself with. Amen? So that's the invitation. I want you to fast this week as a way to counter all the ways you've been formed by culture and the habits that you unintentionally have been shaped by. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.